What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 51 of Dart Against Humanity. Uh, in a, less than 12 hours, I'm going to partake in a panel. I'm going to be a part of this uh, discussion called The State of Black Music and the Arts Across Greater Boston at Hibernian Hall in Roxbury. Um, it's a discussion that's overdue and given how Boston's changed and the particular, like the obstacles facing us as a community, you know, trying to get our uh, our bearings and grow so we can sustain this beautiful culture that has helped America to, you know, stamp itself as official all around the globe, but for some odd reason, it's still underappreciated and under and we're underrepresented within that space. And for some odd reason, if you want to actually write about it or record the, the culture and the history of it, you can't even though it's probably the main export of America and it's probably its, it's most uh, recognizable calling card. It's really weird. It's a weird dichotomy. I don't... It's odd. So, growing up in Boston as a black Latino person, uh, you live your existence depending on where you live in the city i grew up in the south end lower roxbury of course which was always a place where uh the black and latino community resided it's where they were concentrated at one uh, heavily at one point where even when when the population of boston was the number was low like below five percent of black and latino um like denizens the population was concentrated here and the life was here so you had to so if you let's say you were in Harlem got off the train in Harlem you got off from Back Bay Station and bam you had black hotels you had black owned restaurants you had rooming houses you had uh, uh, black people that were uh, musicians uh, laborers uh, Pullman porters you know Owned restaurants. Owned like. Places. Different places of business. Whether you know. all Like anything you could imagine. And they were all centralized. In this neighborhood. Between South End. Lower Roxbury. Going into Roxbury. Uh, going into Dudley Square. Uh, a lot of people came. They were pushed out of Beacon Hill, which was a black enclave before Harlem was. And Boston was a jazz mecca. 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, between 1959 and 1970. Uh, pretty much all the economic power of the South End and Lower Roxbury uh, disappeared. Uh, we had a whole bunch of venues, restaurants, clubs, lounges with full entertainment and liquor licenses and I think all of them but two were shuttered or burned down 
or closed between 1959 and 1970 again. I was born in 1975. So I heard stories about my neighborhood and the Boston that was before I got there. Um, my mom came to Boston, I believe, in 1964. And she was telling me stories about how everybody used to shop in Dudley Square as opposed to downtown crossing. Uh, we used to have the train lines running through Roxbury. Uh, but between, like, there's a book called uh, Boston Boy. And it tells the story of a... um. A Jewish kid who grew up in Roxbury next to black folks and how over time the white people in Roxbury moved out and it became more and more heavily populated by, you know, black folks. And then again, um, so everybody likes to talk about the busing situation. However, the thing is that starting in 1976, when the busing decision came down, which in retrospect, it really didn't make as much sense as you'd think it did um, to integrate the schools, especially in a city that's 90 square miles. And how it actually happened, it wasn't executed well at all. So the thing is that in 1976, we have the busing situation and um, they tr attempt to integrate the schools. Now, here's the thing. Uh, when people talk about Boston, they always talk about the busing situation and the busing riots as if these things didn't happen all over the country, all up and down the eastern seaboard and in the Midwest and in the West. You can't if you go look up uh, busing riots and, and pick a, a span of years, you're going to come back with a whole lot of results because Boston was not the only place this happened. It's just one of the most documented places. There were several books about it. Uh, national footage came down to cover it. The same thing happened in New York and every bar in almost every borough in New York. It happened in anywhere that they were integrating. It happened in Michigan, happened in Philadelphia, you know, happened all over Chicago, happened all over wherever there was busing. There was resistance from white folks. I say that because, again, we had busing. There was no picketing. Nobody was throwing rocks. Nobody was standing outside of the schools in the South End, Lower Roxbury and Roxbury, uh, protesting them bringing white kids into the school. I lived it. We just had our white kids imported from Southie, Charlestown. Didn't matter to us. Now, um, the thing is that what this did was the integration of the Boston Public Schools led, eventually led to a white flight from the Boston Public School System. Uh, whereas now, I believe uh, we're hovering around between 40, between 40 and 45% Latino, uh, around 40% Black. 10% uh, Asian and whatever's left over is like the white population. At one point, the white population of Boston public school system was equal to the population of black folks in America, which was between 12 and 13% at one point. Um, recently, I, I believe it's lower now, not sure. But I know that uh, the black population of Boston public schools has dropped 
a few percentage points between three and five and Latinos have gone up and like the Meco, we're still having issues like this is a discussion about the Meco system. The Meco system is the system that buses or takes black kids or Latino kids from the inner city and takes them all the way out to the suburbs to go to school in search of, you know, better educations, uh, better opportunities, uh, better schools, what have you. Now, when we look at the state of black art, right, it's a thing that's nationwide, but it's especially a situation here. Because whereas we people widely recognize that the forms of art in America that are considered American, a stamped as American, have roots in black culture or were started by black folks. I mean, if you look at the root of gospel, blues, jazz, go back through like the beginnings of jazz, ragtime, all that stuff, go to doo-wop, you know, branch off to like country, western, go to rock and roll, go to soul, funk. Everything that that really stamped everywhere else is, oh, this is an American art form was started by, you know, black folks. And for some odd reason, well, the, we know some odd reason that didn't necessarily translate into ownership. And what happens is over time, things get obscured. And what people don't realize is that who's ever in charge or is making the money or is writing the rules can rewrite the history. And then on the other side, the crazy thing is that like even success can ensure that your contributions won't become obscured, buried or overwritten by the passage of time. Why? Because it need, you need constant exposure to something. Or the story needs to continually be told in order for you to accept it as, oh, that's what it is. Now, the opposite is what happened to Boston. We don't have or didn't have anybody telling our story. And it hadn't been a constant thing. You know, for the, for the most part, uh, the black experience or the Latino experience in Boston has been something that's been completely written off into the margins it hasn't been given any light nobody's nurtured it uh i was uh everybody was hitting me up asking me yo have you seen city on the hill city on the hill city on the hill city on the hill it's set in the 90s the early 90s in boston post the charles stewart case in 1989 um where a white man killed his wife blamed it on the black person the police came in and and were just like harassing every black person that barely fit the description just for Charles Stewart just for it to come out that Charles Stewart did it and I believe he killed himself and jumped into the uh, Mystic River but I was one of the people because at the time 1989 I was I believe I was 14 but I never I haven't looked 14 so they and I was much and I was taller than the average 14 year old had facial hair so I was harassed like I was a possible suspect 
Um, I used to go to Boston Latin School. Uh, after the whole thing came out, I wrote in marker, in graph writing, fuck Charles Stewart on the soles of my shoes. I got um, sent to detention for it. My brother was not happy about that. Well, because he bought the sneakers and two, because it was really obvious. And why would you do that? And you're probably wondering, how didn't he notice? Well, for one thing, he was I believe he was going to a school in another building. They had separated the two buildings of Boston Latin because they were doing renovations. So the seniors were in the old building and me, I was in this place called the Annex, which was actually Boston State College, which was actually um, mass art. It was really weird. But anyways, I watched City on the Hill and I'm like, okay, it's relatively good, whatever. But there's no real discussion of the there's no real representation of the black experience. It's just through the eyes of a a black guy from Brooklyn with his wife. Who live in Boston and are trying to fight the system in Boston as an outsider so I'm like, all right, so there's really no Boston perspective from from the black community here. It's just through the eyes of white of white folks from mainly Southie and Charlestown and a whole bunch of Irish and Italian cops. That's all we're getting. And I'm just like, of course, par for the course. Nobody ever shows anything, but they go to Brom, Bromley Heath. But in Bromley Heath, there's one black guy. He runs out the bu- the building, and it's and they arrest a white guy who's also a CI. And I'm just like, God, they went to Bromley Heath, and they and they still ended up with a white guy. Like amazing, amazing. Anyway, um, I get to the end of the first episode of City on the Hill, and I see produced by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, and I go, Oh fucking course. And I believe I got exasperated and went on Twitter and I tweeted, um, can a brown person not name Mindy Kaling? And then I put in quotation and then I put in um, parentheses. I love her, but she's not committed to doing this work. Close parentheses. Get to tell a story about Boston for a damn change. And this is pretty much the frustration that I've had forever. I could run down a list of brown Bostonians who are in entertainment, who we in Boston and Massachusetts and maybe New England all know and all recognize, but they don't get acknowledged by the city or the state necessarily. When people say a Bostonian, you know, they deal like during the Bruins playing, it was like John Krasinski, you know, like. Bam, you know, he's a representation of what a Bostonian is. You know, the Wahlbergs, bam, they're a representation of what Bostonian is. Ellen Pompeo, bam, she's a representation of what a Bostonian is. Um, it's just like the list just goes on and on and on. It's never like Michael Beach, bam, he's a representation of what a Bostonian is. Being that he's from Roxbury, he's Cape Verdean, he's had a career spanning over 30 years. And he's been working continuously. You know, but not him.
that's just like one of the issues like uh It's just something that's like extremely frustrating, but it's something I've been living with my entire life. Like Uzo Aduba. She doesn't get recognized as being, you know, a Bostonian on the same level as fill in the blanks. Maria Menounos. You know, uh, Diane Guerrero doesn't get recognized as being a Bostonian on the same level as, you know, fill in the blanks, you know, anybody, Amy Poehler, you know, when you think Boston, you think Dennis Leary, Dennis Leary has been playing a New York cop for how long? He's been playing a New York cop probably longer than Ice-T has, um, or a firefighter. So, like, when you think Boston, you think white folks that probably don't even live here anymore for the most part. When you think Boston, you think guys like Lenny Clark. You know? And it's insanely frustrating because you're like, dude, there are so many other people you could have talked to. Whenever, even It's even crazier because when you think of sports... When they do a sports documentary, there's a laundry list. We talk about it all the time. Me, Bijan Bain, uh, Harold, we, 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 talk, we talk about this all the time. How, um, how Bryant, there's a laundry list of people you could have talked to from Boston to give their perspective. And they're always shut out and their names are never brought up in these rooms. So... If you think that's the case there, imagine what it's like in the case of culture and music. We're just not considered. And it's insanely frustrating. That's why we're having the discussion, the state of black music and the arts across greater Boston, where we're constantly trying to eke out a place or a space so we can actually help our culture and our art to thrive. In this city where we've made major contributions to the fabric of what makes America gr- air quotes great eh. so yeah there were a lot of sad people because um the Bruins managed to push it to a seventh game got the home game they wanted uh seems like they had every advantage and they got their asses kicked at home and it was agonizing the way they lost it was just painful the ineptitude that they showed in that final game was just something that was just gut-wrenching but at the same time we already had two parades and I gotta tell you uh, I would really have loved for the Bruins to win but the red line is had two derailments recently, or I believe the MBTA has two derailments. I think one was a green line, one was a red line. Were they both the red line? But the red line is in such a horrible state, and had the Bruins won, that meant that the parade would have been on a weekend, and when the Bruins won the championship in 2011, they had the parade on a weekend, and there were more than a million people flooding this city, a city that only 
could maybe at capacity right now handle 800,000. So imagine an extra million people in town who flew in from everywhere. It, our city was so crowded and so packed that they made the, they made the MBTA free just to be able to uh, accommodate our, the, the swelled ranks of people, just the mass of humanity that was that had descended upon the city. Um, and it was really sad because if that situation, if that was the case and there was going to be a parade tomorrow or on the weekend, this city would have been would have been brought to its knees. It would have been a fucking disaster. So congratulations, St. Louis. I would have really loved to have seen another parade in Boston. I would have loved to have three parades in a span of like less than what? Less than eight months. I would have loved to have that happen. However, we couldn't handle it. And I feel like, you know, St. Louis beat the shit out the Bruins. They deserved it. So it's whatever. You know, I'm not. And, and I hate when people come on. And it's like, hey, you know, you can have it. No, 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 no. I want everything. I want every championship. I want every win. I want every accolade imaginable. We all wanted that game seven. It just happened that the better team won. And I hate when people are fucking salty after a loss or whatever. Dude, don't if you don't make excuses for wins, don't make excuses for losses. Accept what happens. If the better team won in the case when your team won, then the better team won in if your team lost. I don't understand. This the only uh, anyway. Then we look at like I don't know what the fuck the Celtics are doing. I just don't. It's one of those things where I think it's kind of good for fans because they can if you try to do the um the armchair thing where you pretend to be a expert at what's happening, you kind of look like a dick. You kind of look foolish because there's no way to know what the Celtics are going to do. We have no clue what the Celtics are going to do. And I think it's stupid to pretend to have an idea or an inkling. I mean, I understand that people want to speculate because that's what you that's what we do, supposedly as sports fans, but huh? I like speculating when I have some inkling. Some inkling of what's going on. If I happen to know what I'm talking about. And in this particular instance, I have no clue. So why pretend to? It's freeing to just say, I don't know. We'll see. But you can't do that in sports entertainment. You can't do that if you're a talking head for ESPN. You can't do that if you work for Fox Sports or, or Fox 1 or whatever the fuck they're called. FS1, FS2, whatever. They're. Um, You can't do that. However... I can. I don't know. We'll see. People ask me, hey, what would you like for them to do? I was like, Dart is not short for Darstadamus. I don't know. We'll see. I don't work in basketball operations. I am not an advanced scout. I do not get paid to do this. I'm going to just watch and see what happens. And then maybe I'll complain after the fact. I'm not going to split this episode. Largely because 
I just don't think it's worth it. I'm just going to keep going. So earlier I discussed how um, success can't ensure that your contributions won't become obscured, buried or overwritten by the passage of time. This is a discussion that we've had uh, for a while, especially on Twitter, largely because a lot of the conversations and the discussions that happen via social media are had by people of all different age groups with different backgrounds and we're not all working from the same toolbox you know it's not like a master chef where they give everybody the same box of ingredients and you all have to have to make something with the same thing that you were each were given no some of us know more than others some of us have different experiences than others some of us have deeper knowledge than others some of us are professionals at this. Some of us are amateurs. Some of us just don't know what the fuck we're talking about. And we're just throwing shit at the wall without gloves. And that's where the problem lies. Because everybody thinks their voice is equal. Well, we all have Twitter accounts. We all have uh, internet access. But we, But our takes are not equal. Our opinions are not equal. Some are informed, some of them are underinformed. Some people have perspective that the people who are informed don't have. And that's where we are with it. But people, for the most part, cannot acknowledge that. Or they have trouble acknowledging the fact that they're letting their personal favorites or nostalgia cloud. What is supposed to be a discussion about history in relation to art? Or they can't really see the forest for the trees. It's, it's, it's a weird discussion. It's an, inter- it's an interesting discussion, right? You can say that this is one of the greatest things of all time, but if you don't have a good scope or idea, of what's included in that greatest of all time discussion and you only have knowledge of the past 15 to 20 years then you shouldn't be having this discussion at all what you should be talking about is what your favorite is but you conflate it for a greatest of all time to you individually not to people who actually know what they're talking about but you think you know what you're talking about it's weird but moreover the issue is The more time passes, the easier it is for people to forget about somebody's contributions, especially if they don't have somebody constantly advocating for them and and talking about it and putting it out there. You know, Bill Russell uh, played his final NBA game over 50 years ago. So when you talk about who's the greatest all-time basketball player, um, not everybody, not a lot of people now are going to say Bill Russell, especially on social media, because who the fuck saw him play? He played his last game in 1969. Who on social media saw Bill Russell play? I mean, think about it. They didn't record blocks or steals until what, 1973, 74? Who on social media was watching the NBA at that time 
Who has that kind of memory or was around to see it so that they can actually say this person was better than this person? Now, I'm somebody, I'm going to be 44 in August, and I grew up around all the people that told me about the game and what happened, and they grew up watching this person play and this and this and what this person did. And this player that you see here that there's actually footage of learned how to do this from this person. This, these players came up watching Elgin Baylor. But these players grew up watching Dr. J. So when these kids grew up watching Michael Jordan, they thought Jordan was the guy, not realizing that Jordan was part of a continuum of players that played a certain way. You never saw Connie Hawkins play. You never saw Wilt Chamberlain, who they called the Big Dipper and the Still, play. You never saw people play above the rim like that. You never got to see full foot. And in Boston, we were privileged because we got to see at least some footage of Bill Russell running up and down the court and playing with Wilt. But again, back in the days, they didn't even keep statistics. Like, you you can't look up who's the greatest all-time blocks and blocks in the NBA. If you look up the blocks, you won't see Bill Russell or Wilt Chamberlain listed because they didn't keep that stat when they played. Or if you're like, who's the greatest, uh, per- who's the greatest like sacker in NFL history? When did they start recording sacks? Because I believe Deacon Jones should be the leader, but they didn't record it. Moreover, when people ask me questions about yo and and hip hop, who did this first? Who did this first? Who did this first? It's not something people were necessarily recording because the art wasn't considered art. It was just considered this music that it was a fad that was going to go away. So people didn't treat it the way they should have. So there's a lot of documentation that doesn't really exist and therefore isn't verifiable. And the people who did cover it, I wish that there was a serious effort made to document all this stuff, like digitize it, make it a database, because this needs to be treated like anything else. Um, I used to, I used to do lectures talking about black music. It's funny, I'm about to do I'm about to do one on in less than eleven hours, and I would talk about the frustrations of trying to research. Mm, Anything regarding like black music, because a lot of the documentation for certain things are completely lacking or lost or don't have the support of being, you know, put into a database or put into an archive. Some have, but there's work still to be done. And a lot of that has to do with racism. And it's just sad. And what happens is when we don't have proper documentation or a proper record of something, it can be lost. And when something's lost, then there's no way to ever give it the proper acknowledgement it deserves. Because it's not a part of history.
That's the first step to something getting acknowledged. It has to have a historical record. Whether it's recorded, written, verbal, oral, visual, it needs to be recorded. Because there's no way anybody can access it or acknowledge it or even, hey, unearth it if it doesn't exist. Or somebody has to go back and do all that work. But something I always had to discuss and explain to people is like, I grew up reading a whole bunch of different rock magazines, jazz, jazz um, publications, like Downbeat, going back to the 40s. So I had an idea of what music journalism was supposed to be like. Now, these music journalists documented everything. And that's how we know so much about certain artists and their and their actions and their movements and everything else. We know very little about what happened with Robert Johnson, but you know we got accounts from some of the greatest uh, blues and early musicians that were around from them because people wanted to know the story of Robert Taylor. You know, we people wanted to know Robert Johnson. People wanted to know his story because they thought it was important enough to document. If we want to talk about the Boston Funk All-Stars who weren't even included in Nelson George's um, Finding the Funk documentary not that long ago. How the hell are we going to do it? Somebody has to do the work and go track down all these people in Boston Funk and the Legends and put all that shit together and make something, a documentary, a book, what have you. You have to, we have to do that work because there's a hole. There's a gaping hole. There's a void. Growing up, I knew the day John Lennon met Paul McCartney. I've said this before. Do we know the day Q-Tip met Fife? No. Do we know the date that all did all the um the native tongues actually met for the first time? No. But I bet you I can go to some archive or something and find very I could find uh, the first session for a, for a jazz recording I could find the first session for this rock recording I could find the first session that the quarrymen um the first uh, uh, thing that the, the quarrymen played I could find where they played but we can't necessarily do that over here with hip hop because the same amount of importance wasn't placed on it or there was somebody who was behind them who said hey it's important to get all this information and gather it because later on we're going to have to package this to tell your story Winston Churchill said something very interesting I was taking a class at Harvard it was called Hitler's Wars it was about Hitler being the first demagogue and a lot of the discussion ended up turning to Winston Churchill 
And somebody talked to Winston Churchill and said something about this is going to go down in history this way or whatever. And Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill turned to him and said, no, because I'm going to write the history. And this is where we start. When you write the history, you can dictate the you can dictate the narrative. You you have all the control. You tell the story your way. If anybody knows anything about um archaeology or history, uh when you went and did when they went into Egypt and they read, they finally were able to read the hieroglyphics thanks to the Nomer palette. Um they found out that their accounts of their wars and their battles did not match the records that they found in other places, the people that they actually fought, or the biblical account. Why? Because they exaggerated. The Babylonian account ain't the same. The accounts, the Cushite accounts, are not the same. They don't necessarily match up. The Babylonian, Assyrian, Sumerians don't necessarily match up. Because when you write your own history, you tend to have a slant to it. You do what we do nowadays with social media. We, uh, what's the word? Curate. Our fees are curated. You don't tell the whole truth. Got to make yourself look good somehow. It's like when people tell stories about themselves and they always end up sounding like the hero. They never they never end up being an asshole or, or doing something wrong ever. <sighs> but the fact remains that there needs to be serious work done still. Within the space of black music. Yesterday, I uh, I acknowledged that it was the 30th anniversary of Heavy D, the release of Heavy D's um, big time album, his breakout album on Uptown MCA. But also it was the 30th anniversary of the release of On Virgin, stateside, uh, Soul to Souls LP, which was called Keep On Moving Over Here. Overseas in the UK and Europe, it was uh, it was called um, Club Classics Volume 1. I believe it came out April 10th. April 10th, 1989. But over here it was released June 13th, 1989. And also there was released over here on June 13th, 1989 by Virgin. Virgin put out two albums from the UK same day. Um, it's going to go overlooked for most people. Uh, Nana Cherry's Raw Like Sushi. There are a lot of things that people attribute to uh, other women. And they completely overlook the contributions of Nana Cherry. If you listen to Buffalo Stance or Manchild and Kisses on the Wind or some of the other tracks on Raw Like Sushi, you'll be like, wait a minute. Like the work that she did with the Wild Bunch, uh, Massive Attack, Bomb the Bass. Booger Bear, like that album is ahead of the curve. It's at least five years 
ahead of the game, at least five years. And for some odd reason, people just completely overlooked that album and her contributions. Singing, rapping, blending the two. Had a DJ scratching while she was singing and rhyming. Effortlessly going back and forth between the two. She did some things with songs like also... She would have skits or things happening in the background of her songs. She's changing her voice. It sounded like like when someone does like a comedy, like a comedy album or a comedy routine. But like it completely changes the essence of the song. Like it would sound like a skit before the song, but in but in the confines of the track. I'm sure everybody knows. No, they don't. Heavy D and the Boys, um, Big Time, is one of the all-time great rap summer albums. I mentioned it on the previous podcast when I did the, um, the winter albums and then I broke down summer albums. That was what way back in 2018. I say way back because this is episode 51, and I don't know how many of you have been along for the, for the whole ride. Um, and then we have, you know... Soul to Soul. I found out yesterday that the the Fair Play, which was uh, was it the first single, Fair Play, which was a single that uh, okay, this is the story that I heard. The story I heard is that EPMD were going to go on a tour overseas. They were trying to get a hold of their DJ, um, DJ Kayla Boss. DJ Kayla Boss was having trouble. He had, I believe he just broken up with his girlfriend or something was going on. He had some like issues at home and he didn't make the flight over with them to the to the to Europe or the UK. One of the two. Um, so EPMD was stranded in Europe without a DJ of their own. So what happens is I believe they were on they were with Run DMC. And Jam Master J approaches them and says, Hey, yo, I have the perfect person for you. We put this kid through boot camp. He's nice. He could do everything on stage. He's ill. DJ Scratch. DJ Scratch ends up doing that tour for them. And then he becomes a member of EPMD. While they're overseas, uh, Soul to Soul already has singles out. Uh, one of them being Fair Play. Eric Sermon buys the single while overseas. They come back to record their album, Unfinished Business. They sample the drums from Fair Play for this first single, So What You're Saying. So What You're Saying drops right as the album, Keep On Moving, drops stateside. So people are hearing... So what you're saying, and like, how in the fuck they got the same drums as that song Fair Play, which I believe is the second song on the um, album. Like, how in the hell they got the same drums? How the fuck did that happen? Not realizing, because here we don't know that, yo, this shit's been out overseas. Millie Vanilli, who was stomping shit, crushing shit over here. They'd been out overseas. They made the album came out. A different version of the album came out. 
they repackaged it and brought it over here and they were killing everything. Misha Paris had already put stuff out. Nana Cherry had already had singles out in the UK. The Pasadenas had already had singles out. The Cookie Crew, I don't know if the Cookie Crew came out in the UK first before they came out in America. I believe they, they were brought to America and they were working with um, Stetsasonic here. Anyway, this is pretty much going to be the entire episode. One.